welcome to Hit for Six. It's a kind of mild Monday morning, mid-July, two Ashes tests to go. Michael, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm off to Canada in a month. We had my leaving do yesterday. Rob, you came along and it was uh, good fun watching you practice how to be a slow seamer rather than your rapid self. It was quite fun. Uh, off spin, um, mate. The, the transformation's happening. The move to off spin has begun. I wasn't really seeing that spin. I thought you were just bowling straight up and downs at a slower pace. But okay. It was ragging. It was ragging. This is fake news. But okay. um, uh, anyway, look... We don't have that much time, and we've got a very special uh, guest with us, uh, a former university colleague and, and teammate, I can go as far as to say, Alex Brebner Griffin, all the way from Melbourne. Is that where you're based in Australia? How are That's you? right, Rob. I'm in Melbourne. Great. How are you, mate? How Yeah, how's the last six months been, year been? Uh, in- incredibly, incredibly enjoyable, and all the better for having your company this evening slash morning at the time of recording. But uh, no, I'm I'm very well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that each of you are are well and uh, fully engaged with all the cricket that has been before us in the last few weeks. Yeah, so um, the Ashes this summer in the UK seems to have really captured something of at least the the media's imagination, but also has trickled into the kind of wider sporting context and mindset of a lot of people, people who I work with, who don't really follow cricket, are asking me, I had him about the ashes. What do you think about the best day stumping? What do you think about Mark Wood bowling really quick? So it's definitely been an ashes that's captured the public imagination slightly more than let's say certainly 2015 or 2013 would have done as like random ashes series of times gone by when it's, a winter ashes so we're playing in australia i've always known as void ashes just to yeah yeah it, it, exactly one well, I, I can't really I, I remember one of them maybe 2010 11 I, I seem to remember that happened but i don't remember any of the others and it doesn't get the same media attention so people who like cricket like me and michael still follow it big time you know watching into the early hours of the morning but people aren't quite so into it in general is, is that the same in australia is an australian summer ashes a lot more enjoyed than one that's happening in England or is it yeah I've wondered this question myself and I think I think there are a couple of things that make it a little more engaging for the Australian viewership than perhaps you guys and I think I think the first one is the time of day and our watching of of English days of cricket start at eight o'clock at night on the eastern seaboard so it's prime time it's perfect so you can watch a couple of hours or you can watch four hours or you can watch six hours, depending on how keen you are. But it's really easy for someone to to slip into. I'm not sure what the what the culture of, of watching cricket is like so much in the UK, but during our summer, a lot of people like to put it on in the background and you can kind of dip in and out of it. And so I feel like we get something something approaching that when the ashes are in England, because you can just do something similar. It's just, just at prime time. So there's that. And I think the other thing is that off the top of my head, at least in our lifetimes, the series in England have tended to be pretty tight. I think by and large, they've been the better viewing than what's happened out here. Even the one that you guys won out here, you won really convincingly. And and that was, and that was, pretty set and forget it was exceptional i enjoyed it because it was different but yeah it certainly it's felt tighter when we've been over there it made for a really 
awful highlights package, our one win in 2010-11. Like, I got the DVD box set. It was all lined up, class, going to watch us thrash him. And it's just watching Andrew Strauss and Alistair Cook pull and cut and occasionally do quite a ropey-looking on-drive for five tests, mainly Cook. And it isn't aesthetically pleasing. Also, Kevin Peterson slapping around Xavier Doherty. That was that was good fun in Adelaide. I've I've definitely watched that innings back a few times. And when we bowled him out for nothing at, on the first day of the Boxing Day test, that was enjoyable. Tim yeah, Bradley, like two for nothing. So they they were happy memories from that. They were happy memories. You're right. I mean, Alex, it was, it was nice that you basically said that quite politely. That um, the series tend to be quite close. What you could have said is Australia are actually competitive in a way. Ashes series in a way that England are not. And that does make for quite different viewing. Um, but yeah, the, I, I'd agree with you, Rob. This one's really cutting through. And it also, I think the fact there's two Ashes series going on at the same time, because you've also had the women's Ashes going on at the same time. And that's been pretty thrilling. Them chasing down the Australian team, who are the best team in the world, haven't lost an ODI series in however long. And they lost last night by three runs, but went, went right, to, right to the wire again. And actually at uh, my little thing in the park, had a few different guys clustered around one phone watching the end of the women's ashes match. Like how often has that happened? It's like so I think that having the both on at the same time has also contributed to just cricket, 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 and really high quality close cricket. So yeah, it's been class. But we, yeah, we danced around... yeah, go for it. I was just gonna say we kind of danced around like talked about how exciting it's all been, but I think we need to get to the to crux of things. I was saying Alex, you look very stylish before the call looks like a nice haircut i've got two questions did you pay for that haircut do you do you guys tend to pay for haircuts and two what did you think of the alex carey stumping the first question is yes by and large australia's economic history parallels that of of the uk's and and yeah adam smith arrived for us too and and we tend to to pay for things on a, on a transactional basis and the provision of goods and services in return for some sort of fee, usually a monetary transaction. So I firstly would like to address that. Also, my frequency of haircuts is a little different to what it used to be. That's that's a separate story. Uh, the second question, I can tell, mainly the one which is designed to get Rob's back up and we're, we're just going to have half an hour of back and forth as to what the spirit of the game means and whatnot. I, I think the starting point that Ben Stokes worked with was really fair you, you first have to acknowledge whether it's legal or not there's no question of legality it's definitely something you didn't do so I think that's a, a valid point to make I think on top of that whether you get into the morals of it is a real matter of whatever your, your values are and I didn't have an issue with it I think Kerry exercised a, a high level of awareness of what was going on. It obviously made noises to Cummins previously in the over that that Bairstow was taking a wander. I think I think Owen Morgan and Andrew Strauss, I think it was on Sky's coverage, accused Bairstow of being a bit dozy. And my impression of it in real time was that it was a bit that way. I also listened back to Jonathan Agnew's call of it on the radio and he was very diplomatic in not making an accusation himself, but certainly suggesting that it would go down badly. 
and he was dead right and he's got a real a real ear for that so i think it's it's a case of from a reading the room perspective it's a pretty aggressive thing to do and i think it was certainly interpreted as being quite aggressive but it's legal and you can do it and i think in professional sport where where you have no compulsion to do what could be seen as the right thing in this case but you're incentivized to do something that may be seen as wrong i think in the professional setting i think we know how that's going to get resolved and even in a sporting setting as well so i think where you've got the opportunity to do something that's going to help you people are going to do it but do it from a position knowing that it's going to get some backlash and that's what they did do you think exactly the same scenario exactly in terms of the game setup everything but it let's say the gabba or the mcg or the scg uh, it happens the other way around do you think the whole thing gets played out exactly the same but reversed so a lot of professional cricketers are taking out uh, probably fair enough view Fans on the Australian side, absolutely apoplectic. UK tabloid media getting stuck into Australians as, and they call us winking palms, um, winking Aussies. Would you say you reckon it would play out identically but reversed? Absolutely. I think there's a high degree of street theatre in what's going on. And I think if you take that as the, as the starting point, then you're having a bit of fun with it and it's a bit of... It's a bit of a cheap thrill, but it doesn't actually carry that much weight. If you're taking a step back and saying, no, no, this is my considered perspective and I ardently believe this is the case and this is the way things should be, then you're having a different discussion. But I think, I think by and large, certainly the way it's been reported has been, has been true to partisan form. Yeah, I think you've come in here, Alex, with a predictably but frustratingly mature balanced, wise take on the whole thing. And really, we wanted the slanging match and to continue this street feeder into hit for six. And you've not let us do that. And that's okay. And you know what? Like, I agree with a lot of what you said. I, I don't think it was on, as we've said before in the pod. And I think there's a bit of a disconnect between the pundits and the fans at this point because the pundits are all trying to be very balanced. And actually, it just felt wrong to me and other fans. But hey, hope we move on. Also, completely agree with you that Bairstow's dopey. This is a Ben Folks podcast not a Johnny Bairstow podcast. So yeah, it was dopey and he won't do that again. And as I said to Rob, my gut feeling at the time was you guys shouldn't have done it because it actually woke Ben Stokes up and he got us back into the match and gave us a better chance of winning it than Johnny Bairstow's 12 off whatever would have been before he played on or got bowled off a straight one. So yeah, I, I think it's actually backfired for Australia because I think it meant the whole narrative going into the Headingley test wasn't we're 2-0 down, basketball doesn't work and all that stuff, which was kind of where the media wanted to send it. Instead, they had this other thing to go after and get excited for. And the next test was rolling on so soon after. And then England almost felt carried by, a, and certainly the, the atmosphere at Headingley carried by this right self-righteous indignation at those Australian cheating cricketer i mean even heard a radio 4 comedy program dead ringers like the first joke of like the, the most recent episode was about people cheating in their a-level exams and teachers telling them like you don't want to grow up and become an australian cricketer do you um so it really had you know that was the whole vibe and then we were able to take it into headingley and yeah bring the series back to yeah. life 
Absolutely. I think there's there's certainly certainly part of of the calculation in do you do you appeal, do you uphold the appeal, whatnot, must have factored in what sort of response it was going to take. And absolutely Stokes reacted the way you'd have thought. And we know how Broad reacted, and that's always going to be his go as well. So I feel like it's definitely it's sparked a bit of a a bit of a momentum shift. Now I, I wonder the extent to which the the momentum really existed in the first place. I actually thought England had the better of the first test and Australia had largely the better of the second, but I don't think you can read a trend out of that. I think if anything, England should be leading 2-1 and having won the first test. I think if if things go the way that they might, and if Australia happened to win one of the next two, I think England can probably look back on Birmingham as as the missed opportunity. It reminds me a little bit. I mean, I agree. With, I agree with you, Alex, about the momentum. Like you probably did have the better of that second test. Although I was frustrated with how we threw away our first innings position. But just on that momentum thing, whether Cummins would have considered it as part of the whole thing, I don't think he would have. I think Cummins is a very he's, a, he's an astonishingly gorgeous man. Very frustrating, and he's the best bowler. In, he's the best fast bowler in the world. Um, he looks a bit too perfect to be honest. But I think he's also a little bit robotic. I think he's, he does things in the way he wants to do them. I read about how he organises his kit bag and everything has to go in its exact place. And I think he would have just seen that appeal as very cut and dry when he's out. And then he gets asked about it in the interviews. Ben Stokes said he wouldn't have done it the same way. Okay. So I don't think he would have thought about that side of it that much. And then it reminds me of when, do you remember, I think it was um, after the Ashes or before the Ashes, we were uh, in Australia, we were playing, I know, it was before the T20 World Cup. We had the one-day series, and Josh Butler was the captain. And Matty Wade just wipes out Mark Wood as Mark Wood's trying to take a court and bold off Matthew Wade. And Butler, after the game, just says, look, we're at the beginning of a long series here. I decided not to go for the appeal. Because he clearly, in his head, thought, I don't want them going after us the entire... I don't want to ignite it at the start of a pointless bilateral one-day series. So he, Josh Butler, the thinking cookie, thought, no, nah, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And Pat Cummins just hasn't thought about that. Cummins, who's, who's entirely programmed to whatever's in front of him. And I think in all fairness to Cummins, Cummins was probably looking at the Johnny Bairstow who peeled off that lightning hundred in your northern summer last year and thinking this guy has to go and any opportunity is a good one so I can certainly I can certainly see his thinking from that point of view but whether he has the grasp of the sort of real politic that you're speaking to Michael not sure if that's something that's in his wheelhouse but he's, he's certainly I've been surprised at how prepared to stoke some of the fury he has been I think in yeah, under a different regime with a different captain even just someone like Steve Smith I wonder if if Smith would have been much more deadpan and much more inclined to talk about the goings-on entirely in the 22 yards and nothing else and not not read outside that at all and it's certainly been interesting from my perspective that that he's been prepared to engage because we all know we all know professional sports people can be really good at, at deadpanning and not offering any kind of opinion at all. So it's been interesting to me that he has waded into that water. He, actually, I just want to ask about Pat Cummins, actually, because I know that he he does seem like a really good guy, actually, and this whole thing has been 
from my perspective, from an English perspective, the only blemish on a remarkable copybook. But um, he get, he's had a lot of heat, hasn't he, in Australia? Because when Langer got like fired or stepped down shortly after Cummins took on the role, Cummins took a lot of the heat. He's always done all the stuff with the sponsorship, which I don't know much about, but he's been accused of being woke and all of that. What's from your perspective, what's the Australian's public's view of Pat Cummins? Pat Cummins, Pat Cummins is by and large pretty broadly liked. He's he's firstly liked because he's really good at playing cricket, which is uh, before we get too far into the 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 morals of his position as the captain. People like winning captains and particularly captains who pitch in and do their bit as a part of that winning. He does plenty of that. So people tend to like him on the back of that. I really, very quickly on that, I really rate how he bowls more overs than anyone else. And whenever there's like a a key partnership to be broken or a passage of play, he's like, right, I'm bowling and I'm going to take wickets there. Um, with, yeah, which I, I really like. He is so good at bowling. He's... And it tends to work. He normally does come on and break the partnership. Like, yeah. If, if you're a captain who turned to themselves as regularly as what Pat did, you'd want to be as probably as good as what he is. I think it's it's an effective ploy a lot of the time simply because he's he's better at bowling a ball than pretty well anyone else in that team. And that team's got some people who can really fling a ball. So... He, you know, further to your point, Rob, he, he rests less frequently than the other fast bowlers who basically operate on a two-in-one-out basis and there will probably be another change in that direction. I think for what it's worth, Australia will go without Murphy unless Old Trafford is a real ragger. Like, I know, like, Manchester spins probably the most out of the English wickets, but I don't... I don't know that they can take in a bowler who they're only prepared to use when they can afford to go for significant runs at a time. Uh, I think it'll boil down to that instance where if if Murphy's not trusted as one of your four bowlers, then you'll just pick four quicks. and you, that, that gives you room to play bo- both all-rounders instead, which seems like if they're going to use on Murphy, it's a bit of a wasted position if they're just not going to bowl him. I thought I, I thought Murphy got a little bit harshly treated in that test, like got tossed onto bowl at difficult times at a rampaging Ben Stokes, and then in the run chase, um, just given an over before lunch, was it, or before tea or something, like a final over of a session, and then again when we need 30 odd to win, one over. Like as a spinner, that's hard, hard work. And yeah, I, I, I was I was assuming they'd pick him. He did what you he did well in India for you guys. And it does seem a bit weird. I was listening to the great cricketer and they were saying like, you can't really justify picking two all-rounders unless you're saying to one of them, we really back you with the bat because that's so many bowlers. It's like, But then I guess, yeah, if you're not picking your spinner, it makes a bit more sense. Yeah, I think if... I think they're they're not picking Murphy rather than not picking a spinner. I, th- I think they, they would really love to and naturally Nathan Lyon would be the person that they would pick. But I think in that in that absence, there is a bit of a void, and I certainly agree the way that Murphy was used was incredibly difficult. Four years ago, Nathan Lyon had all the trouble in the world in a very similar situation. And that was simply because Stokes is too good at hitting the ball for six wherever you bowl it. So, I think the the problem that the Australian team has so far 
is not major, but I think is the batting. They've had 100 and 150 out of 18 hits between Warner, Labashane and Smith, which is well down on what you might expect, but possibly Warner because his form in England is not great. So I think they might be tempted by having the extra bat with some bowling capability and then you can slide Kerry down to eight maybe and that gives you a little bit more depth because I, th- I think if the current trend continues, Australia may not make enough runs to win enough games. What's that? What's happened to Lavashen? Like he keeps getting himself out. He gets starts, but I saw it's been however many innings without a test century, and his average his average in his last like ten tests is thirty something. Like it's a big fall off. It is, and it's falling off firstly from a very high base, and I think I think his first period in Test cricket might have overstated his ability marginally. I I don't think he was. I think he's a terribly capable player, but I don't think he's the sort of player who settles with an average of about 58 to 60, got above Smith's at one stage. And and that seemed a little overblown. I think he's he's I think part of it is a bit of a correction. He's certainly feeling for the ball outside of his off stump more than what he did when he first arrived, which I think is a bit of a flow-on from from being at the wicket quite so early. I think Warner is not providing the sort of protection that you would need for Labashane Smith and those further down. But that's always easy just to pin it on the opener because they're the uh, one that goes first. I mean, if Stuart Broad develops a whole new delivery in that cricket has never seen before, what are you going to do as Marcus Labashane? What is this thing? You just can't help but nick it. And, and it's too good for anyone. And... Just because the guy's what broad 36, something like 36, 37. He's not young anymore. He just looks young. But um no, he's he's giving him horrible trouble still at this point. Um quick quick one on on Stuart Broad. Is he the most hated England player in Australia? So like everyone in England, if you ask most fans round the grounds of the ashes, David Warner probably comes top of the list, followed by Steve Smith as the ones they don't like. And then the players they do like will tend to be the scene bowlers. Cummins before the best of incident, that's probably no longer the case, but people don't mind Mitchell Stark and, you know, Cameron Green seems like an all right bloke, you know, sort of is the vibe, but the people definitely don't like the, bat- the batters and in particular don't like David Warner and Steve Smith. What's the reverse for Australians? Definitely broad. Broad never recovered, and I don't think he cares, but he never recovered from hitting the thing to first slip and standing there, which I thought was spectacular. Again, spectacular awareness. I've hit the ball to first slip many times. I'm sure each of us have. How many of us have thought, I'll just stand here and see if the umpire give me out? It's incredible awareness to think of that. But and of course, think- then the way he he came on after the birthday stumping and started acting like the moral arbiter of of the spirit of the game. Uh, that was the moment when I, because I, I was at the ground and I was a little bit annoyed. The moment I started hearing that he was saying that, I just started laughing. And it really, for me, added to the pantomime and took away any real vitriol. But anyway, go on, back to back to Broad. And I think he's doing it entirely for that purpose. We, we, we've seen this type in, in sport before, the person who is best motivated with a bit of a sense of indignation and a bit of a sense of, of frustrating your opponent and and making yourself a bit of a a bit of a personal target and he loves it and he's got a hell of a record to back it up so 
why not do it? But he's definitely at the top. People admire Joe Root, for example. I'm just looking at the names here. People admire Joe Root. A lot of people don't know a huge amount of this team. This is a first exposure to people like Harry Brook. And we've seen Wokes a bit here and there, but not for any great extent. And the openers are a bit the same. Hardly seen any of Duckett. No Besto from a couple of a couple of tours here that didn't go well for England. So there's no great there's no great despisal of Johnny Besto. So no, by and large they're they're pretty well. Pretty Ollie well Robinson. Ollie Robinson. Robinson's not on my list because he is going to have a sore back, and that's not going to recover, is it? But no, he's definitely he's definitely in that group now that you mention it, and I think. He's a bit of an easier one to target as well because I, I I don't have a strong opinion about him one way or the other, but I don't necessarily know what he adds to the team much beyond a little bit of aggression and a bit of swing every now and then when it swings. Like I, I don't see what his commodity is as a as a player so much, but certainly the vitriol is there. Anyway, interested in your thoughts on that because I've been watching him for a while and thinking this guy kind of looks like a good club cricketer and he's doing fine at test level, but what's his go? So Ollie Robinson, Rob, you're way in as well, but like he's a very talented bowler. Like he, he was brilliant for us last summer and he was actually pretty good when he bowled in the away ashes with the void series when he wasn't bowling off spin. But he's just like, as a professional, he's had his issues. He got called out for not being fit by John Lewis during that series in Australia because he kept tweaking his back. And then this series, I thought he was going to be the leading man. I think you did too, Rob. We thought he was going to be the leading person in our bowling attack. He's been brilliant for Sussex in in, in the county champ this season. Uh, but his pace has just been down. And I know he's not a rapid bowler anyway, but he's normally, last summer he was bowling, say, like between 82 to 84 consistently not been topping 80 in either of the first two tests and then he did his back like you said in the third test and that maybe it's harsh of me but I was saying before the third test I'm not sure he's fit and then he does his back in the third test and it again it maybe is unfair but I'm just not convinced he's fit and if you if you've already had issues monitoring your own fitness getting yourself ready for matches you get called up by the bowling coach for it it just means people like me who don't know much are gonna assume more lazily that you're not fit, you're not. And that frustrates me because this is the biggest series of his life. He's not young, he's like late 20s. And I was really expecting him to have a great, you know, series affecting series performances. So, yeah, I, he's actually a much more talented bowler than he's shown so far, I would say. Yeah, and he's had a couple of really good last summers in England. So two years ago, India toured and he took over 20 wickets in the four-match series. Um, and like, I remember being at the last, a first day of the oval test, the last test of the summer, and he, he he basically bowled him out on the first day. And then he was injured a bit last summer, but he definitely came in towards the end of the South Africa series. And I think he took something like 12 wickets and an average of 15. Yeah, strike strike rate of below below 30. Yeah, he's taking wickets every five overs. And and then there was questions of maybe he can only do it in England, but then we played away in Pakistan. And he bowled really well there on the deadest, flattest pitches. And so the the vibe was, oh, he's pretty good. I mean, I'm looking at his quick info now. It says he 76 test wickets, an average of 22. I mean, that's quite good. So um, I'd say, 
yeah, I don't think he's given the best account of himself. And there is the sense that once Broad and Anderson do finally disappear, provided he's fit, he becomes our new kind of fast medium when the clouds are over a little bit. He's bowling out Sri Lanka at Headingley kind of vibe. So, um, yeah, I, I, I like him. My favourite thing about him is that, yeah, if he hadn't, as you say, he looks like a club cricketer. And if he hadn't made it as a professional and international player, you know that he'd be gobbing off at some 15-year-old on a Saturday somewhere in, uh, in in the country. So that that aspect to him, yeah, giving Kawaja a send-off when he scored 150 uh, and you're, you're bowling 7, 8 mile an hour, I love to see it. It's wonderful. So he's, um, I think he adds a lot to the the team in terms of bad vibes, which I, which I like. And I think he's, but I do think he's a better bowler than he's given account for here or that he did in Australia. And I think Michael's point around fitness has to be the case. But even if it's not just an injury, there's always been the allegation that he's just not very fit. Like he, he looks a bit fat. He looks a bit out of shape for a, a top level sports person. You compare him to Stark or or Cummins or Hazelwood, for example, he just looks a bit flabby in comparison. And so uh, whether he's, he's injured or he's not fit in that regard, I think that's where the, the question mark is with him. He did, he did a piece last summer, like an interview, where he was like, I've turned it around, and he described himself as a self-confessed gym freak. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you chuck that label in, you got to back it up. I don't want to see, I don't want to see back spasms on day one. So, um, yeah, let's see. For what it's worth, just talking about our perspective on the Australians, I actually, I know I shouldn't like David Warner, but something about his struggles this season, how he's just constantly laughing every single time he gets plays and miss, every time he gets um, he gets out, he's going off laughing, shaking his head. I don't know, if, I'm getting a bit fond of him. I've liked Marnus for a while because I think he's the right side of weird. I fundamentally, thoroughly dislike, detest Steve Smith. I think he's the wrong side of weird by a long way. I think he's a really well, annoying guy. Michael, I, I was just... planning to invite him on the podcast next week, so you might have put put a pin in that one, sadly. But we'll... How are you going to get Steve Smith? I mean, uh, with your connections, well, I wouldn't cricket. be surprised. He would happily talk about it to anyone who'll listen, and I think that's part of the where I think Manus has quirky cricket-related charm to those who like it because he's boyishly obsessed with it. I feel as if Steve Smith has almost this computer-programmed unnerving steely compulsion to to be hitting as many balls as possible gather is not a particularly engaging person on subjects that aren't 156 grams and six stitches so there's not a huge amount to to get involved with on the conversational front so i don't know that he has quite the depth of character that we'd love for someone who is who we're ex- as exposed to as what we are but it's, he is it's a like, case. Yeah, it's like the, the New England rugby coach, Steve Borthwick. I've got a mate who's a sports journalist and said, he actually spent a bit of time with him and said, talk to him about rugby, the most interesting man you'll ever speak to. The moment you move on to anything that isn't rugby, it's just, wow, this is hard work. So, um, you know, that's okay. Hopefully, Steve Borthwick does many great things with our with our rugby team, but um, we, we will see. Uh, my last thing before, I do want to hear how you think the series is going to play out from here. But before we go there, Alex, I need a bit of understanding of the kind of this insult hurled at English people, whinging poms. It doesn't make sense to me because from my perspective, Australian people whinge and moan so much more. 
and particularly your sports media, whinge and whinge. So a little bit of insight from your point of view. Where does that come from? I, I just, I'm, it doesn't really bother me. I'm just perplexed by it because I, I don't understand it. It doesn't really bother me. <laughs> Here I am asking a one-minute question about it. No, that's okay, Rob. I'm happy to answer it. Not a problem. There's, there's non-existent wrinkle that's that's exist that's come to be in your mind but isn't there i can't give you a really considered answer on that i feel as if it is it is a bit of a case of perhaps something that has recently happened that english people don't like and so we're just going to dredge up all of the things that have happened since body line between Australia and England and point to the relevant examples where English people could have been conceived, could have been perceived to have been whinging. Now, I think that's pretty lean, but I also feel like a lot of what's been discussed has been pretty lean. I certainly know that there's, because we all consume our home media primarily, that we like to read about the whinging other and I feel as if there's certainly been that that initial round of media which has said the Poms are whinging because Bearstow got stumped and if the bloke had just stayed in his ground then none of this would have happened and really this is their own fault and they're looking for stuff to whinge about and isn't that so typical of them because X, Y, Z, we're going back to all of the things that have ever happened in the ashes where there's been some sort of moral wronging. And I think there's possibly been a bit of a response to that from the English media, because obviously the two the two medias get to live the media's media, it's a plural, get to live together. And and I feel as if there's possibly been a bit of a call and response to that. But I don't feel like it's particularly it's not particularly pervasive out here. I think it's just kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, everyone says the thing. We do it well, we do the dance for a bit, and then we get on with the next thing. So yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's really it registered and caused much of a discussion out in this part of the world. What a frustrating answer for you, Rob. What a frustrating answer. Well, I was as he was answering, I was thinking, yeah, we we moan a bit here, they moan a bit there, we talk about it a bit, we make Rupert Murdoch more money, and then we move on to the next game of cricket a week later. And that's pretty much how it how it plays out every every couple of weeks. But um anyway, on to then these last two two tests. I'm going to start with you, Michael. What's going to happen? Well, I, I think, as you know, as soon as the Lord's Test was wrapped up, went and put a £20 bet on us to win 3-2 because I had the hope that they would be pissed off enough and it would galvanise them enough that they might practice their slip catching and, you know, that th- th- we might actually be switched on. We might turn match-winning situations into wins. So I'm going to stick with it. 3-2 to England. We're going to keep going. Um and in terms of the England team, I think it would just be um, Anderson and Robinson and other than that same team. And Besto hopefully will sort his act out behind the stumps. Nice. Alex, yourself? I firstly love Michael's point about Besto and wicket-keeping and how it's a whole separate discussion as to why folks isn't in the team and holding the gloves because he's the best wicket-keeper in England and... For some reason, you guys seem to really hate picking the best wicketkeeper at any one point, but that's okay. My inclination is to say that these will be split from here, and I can't tell you which ones will will go which way. I'm inclined to think that there will be there will be a, a bit of a resurgence from some of Australia's batting lineup. I feel like there's a hell of a lot of 
underused talent to this point. I certainly see I see Labuschagne coming good to some degree at some stage, and I think Smith will probably come good again. He's not going too badly at the moment. He's averaging about 32, I think, in this series, which is well down for him, but he'll that, come again. That Moeen dismissal was weird. That was a real game-changing moment, and it was absolutely bizarre. Out of nowhere, they they lost control of that game in, in the in the it was the first innings. No, sorry. It must have been the second. Gosh, second where innings. Is second innings. Yeah, second innings. Labuschagne and Smith both both got out in really innocuous fashion when they appeared to be doing it quite comfortably. You think, well, that sort of that sort of those incidences and those dismissals are, are where you just needlessly and really unexpectedly give away momentum in games because all of a sudden England have gone from kind of slowly being batted out of the game to having the two prize scalps taken care of and really got on with it from there. So I don't see that happening again. I think that's the sort of thing that will burn for them. So I anticipate that they'll come back and and give a good account of themselves. I think England will probably win another game because I think I think this the the strategy that they've deployed and this way of playing that they've that they've used for the last twelve months or so since since McCallum became coach must be wearing on your opponent. Like you're always doing something. There's always something going on. They're always manufacturing some sort of event in the game or they're batting in a different way to what you've seen before. They've got all these weird field placements and whatnot. And I just can't help but think that that would induce a, a bit of fatigue in your opponent because they've always got to be responding to it in a way that we don't really see in cricket very often. So I feel like that's going to have its day. They've got plenty of players who can bat in particular who haven't given a great account of themselves just yet. So I would anticipate Bearsdale will get off the chain at some stage. Brooke we saw to great effect in the second innings at Headingley and possibly can come again. So I can see how this all works. I think Wood coming into the team really helps England. He's a fantastic bowler and that extra yard of speed is going to be pivotal. So I can see England winning one as well, which brings me to 3-1 to Australia, which seems massive overs. But, or is it, hang on, that's no, 3-2. Sorry. 3-2 to Australia, but it would be it would be a really... Significant result for Australia if they manage to manage to do that. I fear it's going to be three two as well to Australia. I don't know which way round like you, but I just feel we're not going to win both of them. And the weather's now looking better in Manchester, so I think we'll get a result in. But you know, we know the only way will ever be a draw with having them play is if it rains. Uh, so. Uh, and, and particularly giving the need results as well. And so, yeah, my, my fear is a 3-2 defeat. So I am going to, I have been saying that to a lot of people, so I'm going to stick to that. But my heart hopes, longs for, indeed my very soul longs for a 3-2 England win. So I'll keep I'll keep believing till then. It would be nice to go to the Oval with it 2-2. And I think that will make that fixture a more engaging and enticing prospect. Um, so we'll... What's what's that Kevin Keegan line? I would absolutely love it if he went there and beat them. Absolutely yeah. love it. There was a lad dressed up at Headingley as Kevin Keegan with his uh, with his head through the TV, like with TV car at cop out with that coming out. Like I would absolutely love it if we beat them. Yeah, I, I would indeed. Uh, look, it's coming up to nine a.m. I have a, a a meeting at nine, so uh, we'll have to call it there. Uh, Alex, thank you for giving up a bit of your evening to 
join us. It's been wonderful having your company. And yeah, look, bring on the rest of the ashes. I'm very, very excited, but a little bit nervous, as per my prediction a moment ago for, for how these last two tests are going to unfold. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, Michael. Good to see you, Alex. Cheers, Rob. Thank you.